Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. It's a great time to live in Mississippi, and we're talking about it. Welcome to the Ricky Matthews Show on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome to the Ricky Matthews Show, where we celebrate every single day the men and women who are working so hard to make Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. From the STMM Digital Studio, the digital uh, marketing and advertising arm of Supertalk Mississippi Media, the sponsor of this this studio, we're thrilled to have them. And um, we're thrilled to have you, especially our expanded audience. It's Thursday on the Ricky Matthews Show, so folks in Jackson and the Mississippi Delta, of course, uh, Supertalk TV, but some people are watching on Facebook or YouTube or your favorite podcast. We try to be there however, whenever you want to engage in this show. We appreciate you joining us. The numbers are incredible. We continue to grow the audience because we're celebrating, uh, not only celebrating Mississippi, but we're learning from the leaders who are out there uh, working in the trenches every day to build a, a better a better state of Mississippi. You know, um, we're lucky to have Hancock uh, Whitney Bank in Mississippi, but but for folks who aren't really focused on this this incredible bank, they also do business in Alabama and in Florida and Louisiana, and they do business in Texas. So they're they are not just an innovative bank, but they have in, incredible leadership. We'll come back to that here in just a second. But you know, traditional and online banking is always going to be part of what they do. But they're obviously commercial and small business banking, private banking, which I've gotten to know. I'll tell you more about that here in just a second as well. Trust and investment banking. They do healthcare banking, mortgage services. They also actually operate a loan and deposit uh, production offices in both Nashville, Tennessee and Atlanta, Georgia. So uh, just a very innovative regional bank and and we'll be uh, talking more about how significant they have become. I should also point out that in in the interest of full disclosure, they are my bank. I've banked with Hancock and now Hancock Whitney my entire life. And uh, I should point out that actually working with their private banking and investment services team, I was able to actually develop a plan that enabled me to retire in my 50s. So needless to say, I'm a fan. But in the spirit of full disclosure, I always like to point that out. Okay. But it's also led by one of my one of my dearest friends. Uh, it's president and CEO and, and really, honestly, one of the most committed community leaders I've ever had the pleasure and honor of working with, my friend John Hairston. So without any further ado, let me welcome John Hairston back to the Ricky Matthews Show. How are you doing, John? Doing terrific. Uh, thank you for the kind comments. Uh, uh, that was a better commercial than I could hope for, man. You did great. Let's do that some more. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I've watched you closely, and uh, uh, you know, I've always paid close attention to Hancock. But of course, when I was the president and publisher of Nola Media Group and publisher of the Times Speaking in Nola.com, is when you made a run at Whitney and uh, combined these two amazing banks together. And you've continued to grow. You've con- con- uh, continued to be strategic. You continue to build a strong team, work on the innovative technology and all the things that you do. And it's been it's been fun watching your journey. But knowing you, I mean, what I've said about you, first of all, you're one of the smartest guys I know, but your ability to comp- compartment is among the best leaders I've ever witnessed. And there's something to learn from just watching your brain in action. So it's been fun watching you lead that that organization. 
Well, again, you're very kind, and uh, uh, I mean, kudos deserved back to you as well. I mean, you and Kyle put together a terrific and informative show that's kind of free of the boundaries that sometimes get placed on these types of of talk shows. The conversations are always provocative, and um, when I listen in, I always end up with questions at the end that I feel like I need to go read about. So, I, if that's the if that's the mission, I think you're doing a great job achieving it. Well, it is. You know, I've, I'm really thrilled to be uh, associated with Super Talk Mississippi Media. Uh, Steve Davenport, the owner of Super Talk Media, Super Talk Mississippi Media, and Kim Dillon, the president, have given me complete freedom. And I can honestly tell you that they have never one time in over 900 conversations that I've had here told me not to say something, not to go there, or not to talk to that person. I have complete freedom. And with that freedom, it comes independence. And when you have independence, you can speak to issues that maybe others might be afraid to go to. We, as a general rule, John, don't get into issues. But when it's an important issue that affects the community, you know, I'm going to go there. And when I decide to go there, you know I will have done my homework and we're going to be able to talk about it in a, in a full and complete way and create a public debate about it. So that's been a lot of fun for me. Reconnecting, something I missed as a publisher. I told George Slogan last week that when – when I retired, you said, okay, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'm going to spend time in the Delta, and I'm going to spend time with my grandkids. And I remember you looked at me and just laughed. You said, there's absolutely no way that you're going to not be engaged in some way. And here I am over 900 conversations later saying you were right. Well, look, we, we all uh, can only hope to make a difference as long as you have the energy and the the, uh, the ability to do it. And so thank you for thank you for not going off in the sunset. I know you like to fish, but the weather down here just doesn't support that every day. So thanks for making time to, to keep enlightening the rest of us that live in the, the state. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about it. Look, it's been a while since you and I talked, and it's been uh, it's been a, an interesting journey. So today we're gonna we'll be getting into sort of the economic situation that exists in Mississippi. We'll talk about the region. We'll even talk about America to that extent. And uh, toward the end of the co- uh, show, we'll talk about what is what are some of the efforts we need to do to get Mississippi that too often ranks near the bottom. Well, how can we get Mississippi up and things like healthcare and economic development and things. like like that, but uh, and obviously, I want to start with uh, what's the latest at your bank because it's a dynamic world you live in these days. And just curious about how things are going. Well, the the whole banking industry is always simply a reflection of the economy. Um, you know, both the moment and then also where we think the economy is headed. Um, uh, in the pandemic, we learned that the U.S. is not really capable of completely disconnecting from the global macro uh, environment. Uh, We saw that uh, uh, really Australia, New Zealand were uh, probably one of the very few, um, uh, I call it called developed countries that were able to just isolate and and it served them well. The US doesn't have that capacity. The economy is too big and it's too interconnected to do that. And so uh, even banks our size, we're a $36 billion bank. Uh, you mentioned when we put Hancock and Whitney together, when that happened, we were 19. So we're uh, right around, around double the size we were when that happened back in 2011. Um, and, and while that feels like a big bank to people like me and you that have been with the bank since it was really, really a, a one or two county bank right in Mississippi, um, that seems big. But on the global environment, we're not really that large of a bank yet the macro matters a lot to us. So we now have to have people inside the organization 
that uh, that can uh, they can hold their own against some of the brightest minds in New York and the West Coast and Chicago in terms of trying to digest and understand the direction we're going. And so, uh, so when you sort of look out at the future, um, you know what may be interesting to listeners is you know what does the next twelve months or eighteen months look like? And I'll try to avoid getting you know too pointy headed on you on economic indices and things like that. But all in all, uh, I think it's no secret that the cost of money is higher. Uh, than it was before. Um, uh, at the same time, the amount of money people get paid for their money in banks and treasuries and wherever it may be parked is also higher. But the difference in those two, which is which we in bank when in, in banker land call uh, call margin, is smaller. And so the amount of money that our industry actually makes is less today than it was a year ago, but it's actually still pretty good compared to where it's been if you average out for the last 25 years. Um, the capital levels, which is the sign of strength of the banking community, um, uh, is has never been higher or stronger. So it was really an interesting affair to, to think about what happened in March with the bank failures that occurred in the West Coast and in New York. And, and was that a sign of the health of the industry? And the answer was a resounding no. Um, uh, those were organizations that, that had a business plan toward banking the very largest customers in the country. Um, they did that. It made a lot of money when times were good. And when the cost of money went up, um, it essentially killed them. And so um, uh, it's a good time to be an old bank. But, you know, next month, we celebrate our 124th anniversary since we were founded in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Um, hard to believe that that many years have passed. And so, uh, 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 but as you look back over the future, having that age and having that history, um, you get pretty good at making sure that you run the company in a manner that if the unknowns end up being much better or much worse than the uh, the various economic forecasters think will happen, you have the optionality to roll with it. And so the healthy banks, those that have a real balance sheet, they have real customers, um, that have very diverse types of customers um, are all going to be very healthy, really, regardless of what happens next year. So in terms of safety of depositors, it's really not an issue. You're probably safer today than you have been in the past 20 or 30 years. Um, that's just the reality we're in. Um, the other thing I think to think about is, is for homeowners that are looking to buy or sell, um, I, I'm, I'm not speaking for the bank now. I'm speaking just for John as a, as a, as a, as a guy that's about to turn 60 that's seen a few cycles. If you can avoid selling your house right now, particularly if you have a loan that's at a very low interest rate, today's a good time to, to wait. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so why don't we do this, John? We're coming to the end of the segment. We'll pick it up right there when we get on the other side, and you can talk about why you believe that. And uh, there's so much more to talk about. I look forward to talking about how your leadership has sort of transcended beyond Mississippi into these other states and what you've learned as a result of your sponge mind from those other states. We'll continue the conversation with John Harrison, the president and CEO of Hankite Whitney, when we come back. Mississippi is why he's here. This is the Ricky Matthews Show on Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show, and especially want to welcome our, our listeners from Jackson and the Mississippi Delta and Super Talk TV. And as I pointed out, a lot of folks listen to the show on social media or your favorite podcast or YouTube. We appreciate you, you paying attention. It's conversations like the one we're having now with John Harrison that really provide some, some I think, more depth. Someone said to me the other day that people have a very short attention spans, but we've actually proven on this show that people like long form. They, you know, a lot of folks do read and pay close attention and they want to learn, you know, they want to go beyond the headlines and get to know the leaders better. And that's what this this show is all about. And today we have my friend, the president and CEO of Hancock Whitney, who's doing business across multiple states, uh, John Hairston. Hey, John, when we went to break though, you were talking about this might be a good time if you could hold off, if you can hold off on selling your home, this might be a good time to do that. Um, get, yeah. Give us a, the basis for, for that for that okay. uh, I, I, I'll try to do it in a quick form because you can talk all show just about that one thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone that owns a home probably has a certain amount of equity. You know, you're the difference in what you owe on it and what it's worth. That's your money that belongs to you, your family, your estate. Um, and, uh, and it's yours. If you sell your home right now, you're selling a little bit past the peak in terms of values. Values have begun to slip a little bit as they do anytime the cost of interest rates go up. So if you give up that equity to get into the same size house or maybe a little bit bigger, um, you're likely going to pay more of a premium because of the cost of money. So for the same house payment, you're probably going to go back a little bit. You're going to have less equity in your home and you're going to be paying more for interest. And remember on a mortgage, the predominant percentage of what you're paying in the early years is the interest. It's not principal. So uh, it's a great time to wait um, uh, to continue to build equity at your favorable interest rate. And then at the point rates will come down and they will come down. I, we don't know what day it's going to be, but it's going to happen. When it comes down is the time that you may get less for your house, but you're going to get a lot more for your money when you purchase the other one. So, you know, Warren Buffett's a pretty smart guy. He says, you know, you, it's real simple. You, you, you buy low and you sell high. Um, that applies to, to, to interest rates too when it comes to your home. So hang in there and wait if you can. Um, it's probably not a great time to change jobs and move, and it forces you to to uh, to deal with your home. If you're renting a home, uh, renting a place to live right now, um, it's probably a good idea to hang in there too and wait for interest rates to come down. Values will come down, and right when they come down, that's when you're going to see probably the sweet spot to buy. So early in the next cycle, don't try to wait to get the absolute mm. lowest rates you can get. Um, you know, don't get too greedy. But when when the rates begin to go down, it's a great time to actually think about your transaction. So be ready for it. Already know what you want to buy. Know what realtor you want to use. Know which bank you want to use. Uh, we're glad to help you if you want to use ours. But there's some very fine institutions throughout the state um, to use. And while I'm at line, Ricky, one interesting thing. When I go back 25 years ago and I look at the, the banks who were in our size range, the two states that had the highest number of banks, they're what you would call mid-cap mid-sized banks were Texas and West Virginia. Virtually all those banks in West Virginia are now gone. Uh, most of the ones in Texas at the time are gone, but there are new ones. But Mississippi actually is one of the largest states that has mid-sized banks headquartered at it. Wow. So we, we are a very well-banked state from border to border, and, and most states no longer have that. So they don't have local management teams that actually care about the environment in the state. Um, uh, I mean, I care about all of our states, but 
But, you know, the one I live in, I pay attention to the tax laws and the legislative environment for things to get better or worse. Um, we have leadership spread across our footprint, as other banks do. But Mississippi is particularly blessed um, with a lot of banks that are pretty sizable that can make a difference in the economy that are headquartered here. Um, yeah. and, and I don't think people really appreciate the positive impact that has on a state's economy. There are a lot of states that wish they had what we have. I, I know that's true. Listen, um, as you know, my son Jordan is a lawyer with uh, Schwartz and Orgler. And um, <laughs> he says, you know, they do a lot of closings, a lot of real estate closings. And the, the number of cash closings they do these days is, is up. You know, it's been up for a while, actually. A lot of folks moving in here from outside the area and, uh, you know, see still significant value here. You know, even though the prices are up here compared to other places like California, for example, still a tremendous value in that. But uh, so it, that's actually good to hear that even when there may be some slowing down in some of these other areas that you that you mentioned, uh, the number of people who are wanting to get to this area and do cash transactions is up. Um, that's a that's a good that's a good testament testament to the value of coastal Mississippi, isn't it? It is well. It's it's still a a uh, it's still a low cost of living and cost of housing compared to many areas of the country. And uh, use California's example. There are a lot of states where um, the ability to live the same quality of life as you may have lived in 2019 is not nearly as good. We really don't have that issue here. Um, uh, I, I don't know that there's anything that I did in 2019. And just in terms of quality of life, that isn't as good or better today than it was then. We've opened all sorts of new features. We have great restaurants and things to do. The outdoors is still the same as it was. The cost of living hadn't gone up that much. Interest rates have gone up, but it didn't like our houses are, you know, that much more expensive. And, and other areas of the country are suffering more. So on a net basis, Ricky, the pandemic, I hate to ever say a pandemic's a good thing. It's not. It's an awful dang thing. But just like a hurricane, there's always a silver lining. And I think what we what we we really threw from, from South Mississippi all the way through the panhandle were net beneficiaries of the attention and focus of people that move from urban environments to shelter in a more rural environment that still had a great cost of living and a quality of life. And a lot of people stay. Um, and uh, we've been able to hire more people from other areas in highly compensated positions the last couple of years than we have been in many, many years. And and some of that's the flag change. I know that's a sensitive topic, but it was a, a reason that we couldn't get people to interview with us before that's no longer there. And I think the pandemic has exposed the quality of life as being relatively positive. I mean, there's a lot of things I'd like to have better, but, yeah. but in terms of just quality of life, it's a great place. Listen, I know you're the CEO of a public company, so to talk too much about the crystal ball may not be the, the appropriate thing to ask. But when you look in, if there were a crystal ball on your desk and you think about the future and the economy and where things are headed, what do you see over the next year or two? It's it's a mixed bag, Ricky. Um, it's a great question. If I knew exactly the answer, uh, I, I, I'd be retired right now and probably have a nice boat like yours out catching <laughs> snapper but the but the uh, uh the reality is if you just look at the outlook and you you know you got it you know outlook is is this moment in time looking forward that's what outlook means i'm looking out in the future um and if you start plotting what the outlook looks like over time it is decidedly more positive today than it was 90 days ago 
Um, the expectation for gross gross domestic product GDP um, was actually a negative number in the middle of the second quarter. It's now back to two percent, which is a healthy economy. So we are definitively not in a recessive period, and there really isn't one in sight today. Now that being said, I said it was mixed. That's the upside. The uh, the further upside is that inflation is definitely coming down. Um, the cost of, of online goods is a pretty good barometer. Now, I believe in buying local in our, in our stores and keeping people employed locally. But, you know, different stores run different sales, and it's, it's kind of hard to use that barometer as a macro health environment because regions are so different based on the cost of commercial real estate and whatnot. But if you look at online, it's a pretty good barometer, and the cost of goods are down from 5 to 15%, and, and the bigger ticket items are the ones that are the least or the, are the most discounted relative to a year ago. So the cost of things has actually improved a great deal. The two offsets are gas costs more fuel, you know, gasoline and, and diesel fuels is up and up precipitously. Um, and the cost of, uh, of housing continues to go up as we have more people looking for a place to live than we have, you know, low cost places to live. So that's the mix in it. So if I had to apply a crystal ball, and again, this is John's view, not the bank's view, what I believe will happen is we will continue to go along the next several quarters um, with with uh, the number of jobs getting created, easing down a little bit over time um, uh, as people buy less stuff with their excess liquidity. Um, uh, right now, our average depositor, our average customer that has deposits with us still has a balance in their account 25% higher than it was the day before the pandemic. So there's still excess liquidity in the system, but it is slowly going away to the point that by the middle of next year, it's likely that people will be in the same position they were before all this excess money got dumped in the system by the, by the government. And so we have about a year of absorption of all that excess liquidity before we get to plumb. So if we can get to the second quarter, third quarter of next year, and 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 uh, job creation is still a positive number, and inflation is hovering between two and three and a half percent or so, um, at that point in time, we can say the Fed successfully negotiated a soft landing. And I think that's more likely than than something dark at this point in time. It's it's never a clean scenario when the Fed has to act aggressively to control inflation. That's never a pleasant journey because there's always going to be good that comes with bad and bad that comes with good. It's just, you know, we live in a yin-yang world right now. Hey, when we come back, we can continue our conversation with the CEO and president of Hancock Whitney, and uh, we'll continue to explore a number of topics. We'll see you after this break. We all love living in Mississippi. It's the Ricky Matthews Show on Super Talk 103.1. 
Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. I have my friend John Harrison, who is the president and CEO of Whitney Hancock Whitney, and uh, we're we're kind of exploring lots of stuff from where the bank is these days to how the economy is doing. We're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more specific here in just a second, but you know, when I went to break, I talked about the yin yang, and that actually re- reminded me of the point that you just made a few minutes ago about sort of this part of the South, and maybe there's a net positive that came from the pandemic. You always have to look at the, the, you have to look for the positive when there's a difficult situation. I remember you and I worked so closely with Governor Haley Barber after Hurricane Katrina, and he often said in his speeches that the Chinese symbol for disaster was also opportunity. And that, to me, that's sort of the, the, the ultimate yin-yang. But the reality is we did learn a lot about resiliency and about leadership, about digging deep, about you know, we thought we worked hard before Katrina. We had no idea what working hard was really about. I watched you at Hancock Bank before Whitney was part of the conversation, developed, you know, that shared service centers and make huge technology investments and all the stuff that you were doing after the storm while you worked with me and others on uh, helping build back tourism in coastal Mississippi. Just an amazing, just an amazing journey. But what, what I'm curious about is I know that, it, like me, that affected you and the way you lead and your view of resiliency in a community, your view of resiliency in a in a major corporation like Hancock Whitney, it changed everything about you. And when you go to Louisiana and Texas and Alabama and Florida, do you, do you believe that it gives you a bit of an edge because of that leadership experience you have, that it gives you a deeper perspective on what is possible and why we have to be innovative and why we have to be resilient? See, how is, what's been the long-lasting impact of your leadership and what you learned about leadership since Katrina? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's a, it's a thoughtful question. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it gives anybody an edge, uh, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, knowing, knowing what a bad day really is, um, is helpful, you know, and we all think we've had bad days until you have a worse one. Um, having, you know, your entire, way of life destroyed in 12 hours, um, you know, your church, your home, your school, your office, your everything else, and having hundreds of people that you care about lose their homes and trying to help them get their lives and families to safety and all that, um, you know, that that felt like a pretty bad day. Um, you know, I lost a daughter when she was six years old, and, uh, you know, that's a bad day. And so as you get through, you know, if you live long enough, you have enough of those bad days, and you have to make a decision. And, um, are you going to go sit in the corner, you know, and feel sorry for yourself? Or as, as, as Governor Barber said back in those days, you mentioned, Ricky, or I think he said, hitch up your britches and, and get back to work. Um, and that, that's a personal decision that every individual has to make. And across the southeastern U.S., as I travel, I run into a lot of people who operate and behave the same way we do here in, in coastal Mississippi and Mississippi as a state where uh, it's a lot higher percentage of people that are ready to figure out, okay, now what do we do and let's get it done, then figure out, then, then, then vacillate back and forth over who to blame and how to take advantage of somebody else during the situation. And so I think that all sums up to character, just the character of the South um, as a good place to live and work and not to throw shade on any other area of the country. But when I travel, I, I do see that. It's a you know, the Midwest is like that. A lot of portions of the country are like that. And the more suburban and rural you get, the more likely you are to be able to, to 
to, to kind of find a way to, to, to come out of it. I mean, look at what Texas has done. You know, when I, when I first finished school, I was in the oil and gas business watching Texas just implode economically. And now we talk about Texas having the economy the size of, you know, portions of Europe. Um, that, that didn't happen by accident. It happened because people proverbially hitched up their bridges and figured out ways to diversify the Texas economy. Uh, to become more impervious to any kind of an economic trend. And they did that. And yeah. so the same thing happened in New Orleans after Katrina. And, you know, New Orleans, it was an oil town, uh, you know, for in the 80s and, and suffered during the oil and gas crisis. And then Katrina knocked out tourism. And then the pandemic hurt them again. But if you go to New Orleans today, you know, you know good luck walking in a restaurant uh, that's notable. You better make a reservation. And so people in this area of the country just seem to find a way to get it done. Yeah, um, and to me that's that bodes well for our future. Hey, listen, John. I'll add one thing that, and this is uh, this is inherent in everything you said. But one thing we learned about leadership and those around us, those who worked for us, and those who we worked with in the community, our assessment of them before the storm might have been one thing, and then after the storm, it might have been a completely different thing. And that is the point that some people, they might be Type A and good self promoters that you would have expected to come through during difficult times, they didn't, and others maybe Type B folks who weren't self promoters that were over here just quietly getting their thing done. After the storm, they just came to the forefront in ways that helped me understand this, that we cannot move too fast as leaders through our worlds and not take the time to really appreciate and get to know the people around us who are leading our organizations. Because if we don't do that, we will sell them short. We will, we will oversell some and we'll sell some others short. But it made us more aware of the values of leadership and what leaders really bring to the table. And we're not, we're not shortchanging that maybe the way we might have done before the storm. Is that something that you learned too? Yeah, and, and the way you said that reminded me, you know, when I am traveling outside the South and I go to places that have had very difficult occurrences happen, you see that same kind of spirit that you and I are talking about around, you know, where we live. Um, you know, New York after 9-11 was a very different place. I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11. Um, I saw all the Pentagon on fire. Um, on the television set in Washington as we were trying to figure out how to get out as the evacuation was becoming mandatory. And and those two places were different for a long time. New York really has never gone back to, to the place it was. It's a much more resilient place today than it was uh, before 9-11. So maybe the secret ingredient there is just having some adversity and having people step up and lead that maybe you didn't expect to. And, uh, you know, Ricky, Rick, you know, we had people here that we thought would have let us out that just bailed and moved. Yeah. And uh, Katrina. And we yeah. had people I never I never saw the size of their heart and the strength of their gut that all of a sudden were like I mean, they were they were Goliath, you know, mm -hmm. pushing things around, trying to make sure that we got things done. And it was uh, it was so encouraging, and inspiring to see. I don't want to see it again. But me, neither, me neither. But you know well, what? It, it makes you a better leader in the community, and even under normal circumstances, because you're willing to dig a little bit deeper to know the essence of who people are. And, you know, it's important as a leader in the community, you want to get that right. You want to have people engage in the community and you want to be inspired by others in the community. And uh, sometimes we run just a little too fast and we don't take the time to understand the essence of who those are around us. So that's the big learning. Hey, listen, I was looking at a list the other day. 
yesterday. This was from U.S. News and World Report. Mississippi, 49th in economy, 41st in education. You, you hate to see where we rank too often. But one of the things that really caught my attention is healthcare, 49th in, in healthcare. And we're talking about Hurricane Katrina. And I'll, I'll make no bones about it. I'm conservative, but I say conservative with a heart. But I have a place up in the Delta. I spent a lot of time in, in rural parts of the state. 51% of Mississippians live in rural areas. And, you know, I think we've spent a little bit too much time in Mississippi making something like Medicaid expansion the boogeyman. And what what I, I don't think that's the solution. I do think it will help us greatly because we're talking about a billion dollars a year. But I think we need a Katrina-like effort focused around health care to re-engineer health care in Mississippi so we better understand the relationship between triage facilities and trauma centers, et cetera. Meanwhile, you know, without that, we've got, we got hospitals closing and the level of care diminishing. And again, 51% of Mississippians, this is not just about poor Mississippians, it's about having health care available and reliable and quality available to people in, in parts across the state. Have you given much time to how Medicaid expansion fits into all of that? Uh, sometime, uh, Ricky, I, you know, I, I, I'm blessed to be able to serve on the, the MEC board. And uh, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if I'm blessed here in a couple of years, I'll have an opportunity to spend a year as chair. And, and, and as I thought about, you know, do I really want to do that? Uh, the reason that I accepted the role is, is that I, pres I presume the next three or four years will probably be the time period that one way or the other we resolve what the right answer is. And, and uh, with, with a daughter who's a physician married to another physician practicing here in Gulfport as of two weeks ago, um, you know, it's a family matter to me to make sure that from a healthcare perspective, it's a state that has adequate health care for, for citizens, regardless of their income level. Uh, we also have quality physicians and healthy hospitals. And, and, uh, uh, and you're right, it's been stressful. But that Medicaid question, you know, there's a few takeaways just from, and from talking to people that know about it from me. Number one is if we can take the politics out of it. I mean, there, there are people uh, that, that we, we have mutual friends who believe Medicaid expansion is a bad thing because it was an offspring of, of one president's uh, uh, efforts to health care improve in the country. Hey, John, hold your thought right there. Hold your thought right there at the end of the segment. We'll pick it up exactly at that point when we get on the other side. We're, we're okay. meeting with uh, my friend, the president and CEO of Hancock Whitney, John uh, Hairston. When we come back, we'll continue his thoughts about Medicaid expansion. We'll see you after this. To more of the Ricky Matthews Show on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. I have my friend, the president and CEO of Hancock Whitney, and we're having a conversation about Mississippi and specifically about health care. When we went to the break, John was making the point that uh, we spent a lot of time 
um, not liking the notion of Medicaid expansion because it was uh, sort of pushed forward by a, a former president, in this case Obama. And we've we've you know he didn't use the word boogeyman. I used the, the word boogeyman before that, but pick it up from there, John. Sure. Yeah. The point was uh, was when when we allow any issue to become a political issue then uh, truth and facts and thoughtfulness get stomped out and pushed aside to red or blue corners, right? And so if we can, uh, if we can just, just take it as, as a financial and a healthcare and an economic question, um, you know, the, the, the side that supports Medicaid expansion will often say, well, it's a billion dollars of money the taxpayers are already paying for and it's kind of free coming in. And that really isn't the case either. And so I think the issue is everyone's retreated to their positions that it's uh, it's Obamacare on one side or uh, it's free money on the other. And, and neither of those are actually true. Um, and so... Um, uh, so I'm going to use this morning. If you ask any hospital administrator in, in, the, in the state, do they support Medicaid expansion? They'll all tell you yes. And, and they're not wrong. Um, if you ask uh, 100 physicians, probably 90 of them will tell you, no, they don't support it. But 100 of them will tell you that they support a thoughtful hybrid implementation to where we focus on three constituencies benefiting the, phys the, the, the uh, financial health of hospitals, the financial health of physicians and keeping Mississippi as an attractive place for physicians to live and work. And then third, the access to good quality and affordable health care of the people that live in the state. And, and it, it's sensitive because there are places where Medicaid is often abused and there are places where physicians will not work because so much of a high percentage of their patients are Medicaid, the payments are so low in this state, not everywhere in this state, that they can't operate successfully. So physicians begin to withdraw from Medicaid patients. Well, if you expand Medicaid, but physicians won't see those patients because they're losing money when the client walks in the door, well, that's not going to work either, right? So what, what you know, if we could get a group of, of people that can set aside their political beliefs and let's just study the economics, the healthcare, and the fairness of how it's implemented. I'm highly confident that we can get over a period of two or three years with just the facts, get to an implementation protocol that is socially and politically sellable to enough voters and enough members of the legislature and the governor, et cetera, that I think it's, it's, uh, it's digestible. But, but you have to check, check your party affiliation at the door when you walk in the room and try to think equally about all three of those constituents, they both, all, all three deserve our focus and they deserve a good outcome. But where we are now with, you know, all or nothing is never going to work. And meanwhile, other states have figured out a way to thread this needle and we should too. And, and, and a number of Republican states, and they have done their version, as you pointed out. They found found the, the right mix, the hybrid approach that works for them. We can do that here in Mississippi as well. You know, that's why I think there's a lot of— It's not of, easy, Rick. Uh, it really isn't easy. It's not easy. You know, when yeah. I've talked to—you know, and I'm trying to be an equal opportunity critic here. You know, I've, I've talked to friends who are both Democrat and Republicans who are so fixated on their positions that it's hard to get them to the table— to consider the bigger picture, and 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 that requires leadership. Um, it requires political leadership and business leadership and healthcare leadership. And so, if we could get a, 
a group together to study it over a couple, three years, I think we could probably put something together that works. And I hope so John, that we can do that this next three or four years. John, I think that's why the Katrina effort is uh, is a good uh, best practice for us to look at. Could you think about Haley and what he put together was a was a nonpartisan, truly a bipartisan effort with uh, with uh, you know f- former Governor William Winter on the executive committee and John Palmer, even even uh, 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 the uh, the president of NAACP was involved in the, in the effort. But the reality was we have to go about this in a non-political way. Anyone who's got staunch beliefs either direction, certainly if they've got something of a value to bring to the table, that would be important. But what you really need is uh, is as healthcare leaders and CEOs in this in this in the state who who have you know, from outside healthcare to come together just as we did, you know, thousands of people after Katrina, and we developed a, a way to to recover. We can do the same here, and that's what's needed. And it ha- you're right; they have to check their party affiliations at the door, and do this in a nonpartisan way and try to take the politics out of it. I think we can do it. But yeah, where we are now is not sustainable. That's the reality. Where we are it, now is not sustainable. Not, and part of the most difficult recipe, I think, for success for our state is, you mentioned the Delta earlier, the Delta and their other pockets of of the state to where uh, commercially insured density and the demographic population is too low because there aren't enough people employed by organizations that offer commercial insurance. And yeah. so there, you know, this is, it's a little, it's bigger than just the Medicaid conversation. If we, if we expand Medicaid and 70% of the population is going to be on it, that you still won't have adequate health care because people won't be available to see patients. So we got, we got to create jobs, which requires a whole lot more efforts, I think. I think on the Republican side, we have to create better education, which falls inside, I think, some of the Democratic platforms. And, and I think we take the best of all those ideas, check our political garments at the door, and put forth a Mississippi moving forward kind of a, a process that maybe after a year in our time, Ricky, when we're we're, we're, we're in our in our dotage and can't really enjoy the benefit, but our grandkids certainly I think it's worth our time. John, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you, my friend. This has been John Harrison, the president and CEO of Hancock Whitney. Have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.